Hey everybody, welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. We are going into part two of Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Tepish as he is known, although Tepish does mean the Impaler, he earned that, um, but that's just in Romanian, so... Anyway, um, this week, before we get into it, this week has been, or last week was insane too, but I got sick again last week and my child has entered into a preschool environment. And so I didn't know this before I had kids, but apparently there's like this breaking in period when they are getting into any kind of public schooling environment and it is just getting all of those viruses and just getting their immune system up to, um, I don't know, the normal standard. (laughs) So that's something that would have happened either if he went to elementary school or it happens when you go to daycare sometimes. So we're just getting it out of the way now. Anyway, me and my husband are all getting sick at all times now. So, um, that I was so excited to record last weekend, but it just did not work out. Um, and as much as fun as it would be to like record and then edit out all my coughing and hacking up love lungs, um, I decided just to put it off until I felt better. And I definitely do. So we are going into part two of Vlad's life. And there may be definitely some mispronunciations in here because there are some names that I just could not get. So be prepared for that. But as a recap, we left off with our man Vlad having finally ascended to Voivod in Wallachia. But with powerful enemies at his back, he really couldn't afford to enjoy this win. He immediately executed and purged via impalement hundreds of boyars and other government officials who he felt hadn't supported his family through these struggles. Struggle bus, am I right? Just kidding. After giving their money to his friends and his other supporters, he only had two members of his prince's council left, and they were Voiko Dobrita and Jova. It was at this time that Vlad decided to act on his long-held grudge against the Ottomans for having held he and his brother hostage. Even though, to be fair, Vlad learned science and technology during his so-called imprisonment, and they also trained him to be an excellent warrior, so while I feel that he should have called it even Stevens, um, he certainly didn't feel that way, and to the estimation of scholars, he had always planned to avenge his family's downfall. So he stopped paying tribute to the Sultan. And I mean, the Ottomans also should have seen this coming because they literally trained their enemy's child. Did they really think that he would be like, oh, great, I'm a warrior now. I'm not going to avenge my father's death, even though it technically didn't come at the hands of the Ottomans, but whatever, it's fine. Um, It's fine. It's no big deal. (laughs) They did not call it even. Um, That being said, yes, he was. Him and his brother, Radu, they were definitely tortured. But that was really, really short. I mean, what's a little torture between friends and mentors? But it was definitely short-lived. So, yeah, he was on friendly terms with the Ottomans until it really just didn't suit him anymore. And then he was like, screw you guys. I'm going to go be a ruler in Wallachia. So, anyway, Ladislas Hunyadi was still making moves in the background to unseat Vlad, 
but his moves in regards to neighboring Wallachia were cut short. Ladislaus V of Hungary had Ladislaus Hunyadi super murdered on the 16th of March in 1457. By the way, I'm going to just start saying super murdered instead of executed because it's just so much more fun. Um, it's, it's not fun at all, but these people have been dead for hundreds of years, so I'm just going to do what I want. Um, again, these were two different people. So Ladislaus V of Hungary um, and Ladislaus Hunyadi. Remember, Ladislaus Hunyadi was John Hunyadi's son, and Ladislaus V eventually um, ascended the throne of Hungary. So all that's fun. Obviously, Hunyadi's mother, John's wife, was not cool with this and partnered with her brother, Michael, to rebel against Ladislaus V. Vlad took advantage of this unrest, as he did in the past, and helped his old friend Stephen of Moldavia in his coup attempt to seize power back in Moldavia. On the way, Vlad also decided to do a little plundering of his own and invaded Transylvania to rob the villages of Brashov and Sibiu. This is where we get into a few more stories of his cruelty. Instead of robbing and pillaging the villages, he woke up and chose violence. He carried the men, women, and children of these Saxon villages to Wallachia and had them impaled because the towns refused to stray from their loyalty to the Hungarian king Ladislaus V. It was after this that Vlad and the Salagis struck up peace negotiations. The burghers of Brashov agreed that they would oust Dan III from their town, and Vlad promised that the merchants, or what was left of the merchants of Sibiu and Brashov, that they could freely buy and sell goods in Wallachia if the same privilege was met for the Wallachian merchants on the Transylvanian side. Vlad was such a fan of Michael Salagi that he refers to him as his lord and elder brother in a letter in 1457, and also officially married Justina Salagi. Now, he had a son from an unnamed woman. Really, it's been lost to the... Um, years of history, but he had a son. He ended up dying um, before 1487. So he did have a, an illegitimate son who was around at this time, but no one knows his name. No one talks about him. The only time that he is brought up is once he dies. So he has a son running around during this time, but he officially marries part of the Salagi family, and that's Justina Salagi. And I find this interesting because Michael Tlagi is the uncle of the man who had caused a lot of issues for Vlad to begin with, Ladislaus Hunyadi, John Hunyadi's son. So I guess all is fair in coups and war. Back in Hungary, Ladislaus Hunyadi's younger brother, Matthias Corvinus, was elected king of Hungary in January of 1458. This marks a turning point for Vlad because Matthias was not only an ally, but a family member, as Justina was his niece. Matthias ordered the burghers of Sibiu to keep the peace with Vlad. Vlad was now free to order everyone to address him as lord and ruler of all of Wallachia and the duchies of Amlash and Fagarash. I could have completely said that wrong. In my head, it came out so nicely, but once my head had to communicate to my mouth to say it, it just did not work out. Fagarash? I'm not sure. This allowed him, anyway, moving on, this allowed him to be as flagrant in his abuses of power as he wanted to be. 
For example, Michael Salagi had allowed an official of Vladislav II and a few other Wallachian boyars to settle into Transylvania in March of 1458. Because this boyar, named Michael, no last name given, um, was an official of his former oppressor, Vlad had him impaled directly after he moved into his new home. Apparently, Michael Slagi just said, oh, that Vlad, he's so touchy, and just let it go, because it doesn't appear to have damaged their relationship. It may also be likely that a conflict with Vlad over what was politically minor um, to Michael was just not worth pursuing at the time. In May, Vlad asked the burghers of Brashov to send craftsmen to Wallachia for a project, but by, this, by the time that they arrived they were denied entrance to Wallachia and they were forced to sell their goods at a lower rate to the Wallachian merchants at the border to keep afloat. In retaliation, the Saxons in Brashov confiscated steel that a Wallachian merchant had brought to sell without paying him for it. Vlad, who'd caused the conflict to begin with, was upset that anyone would dare do this. So he kidnapped a few Saxon merchants to torture and rob, as one does. (laughs) He didn't just stop at the merchants, though. He had their children and some of the merchants themselves impaled, and some of them were even burned alive. We know this because Dan II's other son, not Dan III, Basareb Leota, wrote to the counselors of Brashov and Tarabarse, who then informed King Matthias Corvinus. And we have the letter. It survives. So let's go ahead and read it. You know that King Matthias has sent me. And when I came to Tara Barse, the officials and counselors of Brashov and the old men of Tara Barse cried to us with broken hearts about the things with which Dracula, our enemy, did. How he did not remain faithful to our lord, the king, and has sided with the Ottomans. He captured all the merchants of Brashov and Tara Berse, who had gone in peace to Wallachia and took all their wealth. But he was not satisfied only with the wealth of these people, but he imprisoned them and impaled them, 41 in all. Nor were these people enough. He became even more evil and gathered 300 boys from Brashov and Tara Berse that he found in Wallachia. Of these, he impaled some and burned others. That was Basarab Leota's letter to the counselors of Brashov and Tara Barse. At this point, first of all, I, I don't think that he had sided with the Ottomans at this point. We've already discussed that he was ready for them to go to war with them. But anyway, at this point, King Matthias was done second-guessing Vlad's cruelty. He fully backed our old friend Dan III. Dan III broke into Wallachia with a real vengeance, but Vlad was as skilled a warrior as he was an impaler, and he captured Dan in April, one year after all this mess had started. Dan was, of course, executed, as if there were any other fate for him, and Vlad invaded southern Transylvania and destroyed everything in his path until he arrived in Brashov. While he addressed the citizens of Brashov as his brothers and friends, he also demanded that he be allowed to expel or punish all Wallachians who'd fled the war to either support Dan III or to seek shelter there. 
He then entered his new Transylvanian territories, Amlash and Fagarash. Got it. Boom. Anyway, he entered his new Transylvanian territories to officially punish, um, read, impale, and otherwise kill, the local inhabitants who'd openly supported Dan III. Where were the Ottomans during all this unrest? Well, we're getting to that. At this point, it had been three years since Vlad had paid any sort of tribute to them, and while the new sultan, Mehmed II, was out on a long expedition to Trebizond in 1461, Vlad decided that it was time to make up with King Matthias of Hungary so they could take on the Ottoman Empire together. And you see there's kind of a a pattern here. When the main rulers are out, either warring or, I don't know, on vacation, um, that's when Vlad strikes. And so far, it's been very fruitful for him to do this. So, of course, he would continue doing it with the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottoman Empire is not Transylvania. So we'll see how it goes. Mehmed at this time had sent his envoy a Greek man by the name of Thomas Katabolinos to Wallachia to order Vlad to come explain himself in Constantinople. Mehmed had heard of his atrocities and traitorous tendencies by this time and had secretly told the Bay of Nicopolis, a man named Hamsa, to capture Vlad the minute he'd crossed the Danube. Vlad, too, had his spies and informants and found out that the sultan meant to take him as a prisoner, which must have brought back memories of his childhood and his father and his older brother's fates. So he described the sultan's actions as deceit and trickery and captured Hamsa and Katabalinos before they had a chance to act on anything. He then had them super murdered by method of impalement, surprise to no one. And after this is when Vlad decided it was time to strike. He rode with his army to Georgiou and spoke in fluent Turkish to the guards, ordering them to open the gates. That apparently was all it took for him to capture Georgiou, and he used that fortress to stage his invasion of the Ottoman Empire. I'm thinking that they were just confused. They were like, well, I mean, Vlad did used to occupy this area. I mean, he was formerly here and cool with the Ottomans, so I guess let him in? I don't know. There's not much said about it. But anyway, Vlad started terrorizing the villages on the border of the Ottoman Empire, killing to his estimation, so it's probably actually more than this, but to his estimation, he said that he killed 23,884 Turks and Bulgarians. And at this point, his armies were wearing thin, and he wrote to King Matthias to get military assistance. He'd explained to the king that he'd broken the peace with the sultan for the honor of the king and the holy crown of Hungary, and for the preservation of Christianity and the strengthening of the Catholic faith. Sure, Jan. It's definitely not over some kind of family feud situation. It's definitely not to avenge your father. It's fine. It's definitely for the Catholic faith. Mehmed was over the whole conflict, though, so he sent a massive show of power and strength to confront Vlad. The army was 150,000 strong and said to be second only to the army that he used to occupy Constantinople in 1453. Many scholars have contended that he meant to annex Wallachia and Transylvania completely, 
But as Mehmed had also named Radu, Vlad's younger brother, as the new voivode of Wallachia, I don't know that this is the case. I think that they wanted to avoid an all-out war with Hungary by keeping Wallachia a suzerainty. Mehmed sent envoys to Vlad to try to broker some sort of truce, but when the envoys had an audience with Vlad, they were asked to remove their turbans. They refused, citing religious custom. Vlad commended them on their devotion to Allah and wanted them to know that he had a way of ensuring that their turbans never left their heads. He then had their turbans nailed to their skulls. That was that, and war was inevitable at that point. Vlad, after seeing that he wasn't going to be able to defeat an army of 150,000 men, retreated back to Targovishta, burning every village and capturing every prisoner of war he could on the way. Before arriving to his destination, however, he devised a plan to assassinate Sultan Mehmed II by sneaking into the Ottoman camp at night with a small group of soldiers. If he did this, it would cause panic and the Wallachian armies had a small chance to drive the Ottomans back to Turkey. Unfortunately, the attack wasn't well planned out at all. The group ended up attacking viziers Mahmud Pasha and Isaac. This failed attempt had Vlad and his group fleeing back to their camps at dawn. When Mehmed and his troops arrived in Targovishta, they were disgusted and horrified to find that Vlad had left them a very Vlad-like present. They described a forest of the impaled upon entering a deserted Targovishta. Historian Launikos Chakokondelis describes it in a passage of his book, The Histories, as such. The sultan's armies entered into the area of the impalements, which was 17 stades long and 7 stades wide, about 2 miles. There were large stakes there, on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted, quite a sight for the Turks and the sultan himself. The sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants, too, affixed to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests and their entrails. How horrid. Despite the savagery, Vlad was on the run. Radu at this point makes an appearance commanding his own Ottoman armies to secure Wallachia. Though Vlad and his Wallachian armies won two battles against Radu, the Wallachian soldiers were battle-worn and began fleeing en masse back to Radu, who was seen as the more stable ruler. Not a surprise here, really. Vlad didn't impale over 23,000 people on his own. He had his soldiers do it. And impaling men and women may be one thing, but impaling infants and children is quite another. Despite what is thought about the people during the medieval period, they cared about and loved children just as much as you and I do. This must have been a breaking point for them. With his soldiers deserting him, Vlad fled to his famous Carpathian Mountains to regroup and ask Matthias Corvinus for more assistance in regaining the throne. 
While Matthias did come to Transylvania in November of 1462, he ultimately decided against a war with the Ottomans. In the end, he had Vlad captured and taken prisoner in Wallachia. Because Vlad had called this a holy war, King Matthias had to offer an explanation for his actions to Pope Pius II and the Venetians, who'd sent a lot of money to finance Vlad's campaigns against the Ottomans. Three letters were sent to the Pope, supposedly from Vlad to King Matthias. These letters proved that Vlad was only out for his own interests, and that God had nothing to do with his campaigns against the Ottomans. Their contents were described as clumsy, poorly written, in broken Latin, and meek in the extreme. In other words, they were probably forged by a priest of Brashov, to be honest. Vlad was more than well-educated and spoke several languages, Latin being among the most prominent, and I think we all know at this point that his character was anything but meek. Why he wasn't killed after this, I do not know. Many others were killed for much less. But regardless of that, he was imprisoned first in the city of Belgrade, now known as Alba Iulia in Romania, but after that, he was moved to Visegrad, where he stayed for 14 years. During the time, or this time, we really don't have a clue as to how he lived because there are no surviving documents. After 14 years, he was released and settled his family into a house in Pest. When a soldier broke in, or several soldiers broke into his house to pursue a thief who tried to hide there, he had their commander executed because he didn't ask permission to enter his home. And apparently that was another, oh, Vlad instance, because it doesn't appear that he was punished for that at all. Well, King Matthias did recognize Vlad as the lawful prince of Wallachia, he didn't support him at all with troops to regain his throne. Sultan Mehmed didn't agree with King Matthias, though, and still recognized Vazareb Leota as the lawful ruler of Wallachia. At this point, Vlad had taken a home back in Sibiu in Transylvania, but left after a few months to move to Buda, where he thought he bought a house in Pax. And that house became known as Dracula Hasa or Dracula's house. After this, it becomes dicey. To simplify, Bazareb, in charge of Wallachia, also had a tense relationship with the Saxons because many of them still supported Vlad. He expelled all of Vlad's supporters, and the voivode of Transylvania told them to go to Vlad's house in Pex. Vlad and Stephen Battery entered Moldavia to fight off the Ottomans who'd occupied it while Vlad was imprisoned and forced them out. Matthew Corvinus then wrote to the Transylvanian Saxons, and these poor people, by the way, just constantly under fire. Anyway, he wrote to them and told them to support Batory's planned invasion of Wallachia because it was to depose Basareb, uh, Leota, and reinstall Vlad as their leader. And while they win a few battles, Vlad didn't count on Basareb being able to garner a large army from the Ottomans. In December of 1476, when Basareb came back to Wallachia to battle Vlad once again, Vlad was finally killed on the battlefield. It was written that Vlad's Moldavian retinue had also been killed. Vlad's body was reportedly chopped to bits, and his head was sent to Sultan Mehmed to confirm their victory. He was then laid to rest at the monastery of Snagov, 
but recent excavations have disproved this. It's now said that he was likely buried in the Kamana Monastery, which he had established. It was also near the battlefield where he died, so it stands to reason that this is true. Vlad did have a child, as I previously mentioned, with his wife Justina, named Vlad Draculia, and he died trying to avenge his father in 1495 or so, but not before producing heirs that would be known as the noble Dracula family. His sons with an unknown wife, perhaps John Hunyadi's daughter, we don't really know, had an interesting story themselves, or at least one did. One of them died before he did, before Vlad did, but his eldest son, Minea, actually did go on to rule Wallachia, though for only a year, alongside his son, Mircea III, from 1508 to 1509. So why do the Romanians still hold Vlad to be their national hero when he committed all of these atrocities, sometimes even to them? Well, it's complicated. So they do consider him as being a harsh ruler, but they also see his rule as one that wasn't corrupt. He historically hated thieves and liars and was steadfastly dedicated to eradicating thieves in the government who stole from the poor in particular. He was also a brave warrior who actively defended Wallachia and gave his life to protect it. So it's 50-50. A lot of the lore that surrounds Vlad also comes from Bram Stoker's book, Dracula. While many have said that Bram Stoker was inspired by Vlad, his family has released the notes he took while writing the book, and only once was Vlad mentioned. He was more interested in the name Draculia and the fact that it meant devil in modern Romanian. Should you want to visit Romania to see where Vlad lived, you'll likely be directed to pay a fee and tour Castle Bran in the village of Bran, but try to avoid it, as Vlad never actually lived there. Vlad II got it as an outpost from which to tax the Transylvanian merchants, but it was never lived in. You'll have more luck in Sigiswara, where Vlad's birth home is still standing. You can also treat yourself to some plays about the last witch trials that took place there, as well as stories about Vlad's life. One includes a golden goblet left at a town well that no one touched out of fear of the consequences from Vlad. People appreciate that kind of fear when it protects the lives of the law-abiding citizens. Panari Castle is also a popular spot, as Vlad had it built by the boyars he was angry with, and then had them killed once the construction was finished. He's just not a blood drinker. I mean, not for sustenance. There was a story that he laughed at a woman who was being impaled and drank a goblet of her blood in front of her as she was dying on the stake. He was also rumored as having served her breasts for his guests to eat, but who knows if that's accurate. However you feel about his deeds, embellished by the Saxons or not, depending on who you listen to, he's definitely an interesting dude and worth all the hoopla he's given. In any case, thank you so much for listening. I know this was a long episode. It was two parts, and I know that I have a child playing in the background who cannot understand, thankfully, what I'm talking about. (laughs) So thanks so much for that. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate that. Or really, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a review for me if they have that option. Um, And then follow me on Instagram. I'm at Historical Paranormal. And please do send some story ideas. I'd love to hear what you want to talk about. All right, you guys. Thanks so much. Y'all have a great week. Bye.